invite you to please uh, turn in your copy of Scripture to our text for this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. As we continue our, in our series through the book of Hebrews, and here we read a very familiar passage, a passage that is often uh, disputed by many Christians as to its interpretation. And so as we read, we want to ask that God might give us understanding in these things. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. As we look at these verses, we remind ourselves, as we have been going through this series through the book of Hebrews, that this letter was written to Christians in the first century who were tempted to return to the older covenant, to the system of worship in the Old Testament. They were formerly Jews, most of them most likely born and raised in the Jewish faith. But when they heard the gospel, they trusted in Christ as the promised Messiah. And while they were joyful about Christ and their newfound faith, they were also experiencing newfound challenges, newfound opposition because of their faith. They were being, we read in the book of Hebrews, treated unfairly, They were being rejected by their Jewish family and friends, the people that they had loved and that had loved them were now rejecting them and turning them away. They were also being excluded from the Jewish community. This involved loss of jobs, loss of business opportunities, loss of income. Um, The rejection was severe. And the threats from Rome were getting more dangerous against Christians as well. And so, in light of this newfound opposition and this newfound stress and pressure that the Hebrews were under, some of them were tempted to turn away from Christ and back to what was familiar, back to what had been safe before, back to Judaism. And so, the writer of the Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes to encourage these Christians and to encourage us this morning to persevere in our Christian faith, not to turn away from Christ. And why? 
Why would we need to persevere and want to persevere? The writer throughout the epistle explains that Christ is the sum and substance of all of the older covenant promises. And so to turn away from Christ is to turn back to something that is now passed away, that has now been fulfilled. It is to turn from the reality to but a shadow. So the writer to the Hebrews encourages them and us to persevere. And so what we see in our text this morning is a warning. It's a warning against turning from Christ. As we read again, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, the people being described in this passage are those who were part of the covenant community. They were part of the local church. And they seemed outwardly to have a faith in Christ. These were people that had jumped through all the hoops to become members. They seemed to be Christians on the outside, but they were, in fact, never truly converted. Again, they were in the local church. They experienced the blessing of being part of the local church, but they never had true faith in Christ. They were only Christians outwardly, but not Christians inwardly. And so while they seemed on the outside to be faithful for a time, they seemed to be true followers of Christ, they did not persevere. They instead fell away. And this interpretation uh, is consistent with Jesus' parable of the sower. as We read in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And in that parable, I'm sure you notice that in two instances, the seed that was sown grew. And there seemed to, to be some thriving maturity there. There was growth. It seemed ready at some point perhaps to even produce fruit. And yet, the growth did not last. We read in Mark chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, a description of the seed. Where Jesus says, Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Jesus gives us the interpretation of what he's referring to in this parable. The interpretation is found in verses 16 through 19 of Mark chapter 4. And he explains that these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. This is the characteristic of that seed sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. And then Jesus now describes the second example. And others, 
are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So what we learn from this parable of the Lord Jesus is that in both of these instances, there seems to be faith. There is some growth, but it doesn't last. In fact, we see as time passes, the evidence becomes more and more clear. These people profess faith, but they don't have true faith because they ultimately fall away. They turn away from Christ. They apostatize. They do not persevere. And that's who's being described here in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. As we see in our text, the author of Hebrews mentions five characteristics in these verses of those who turn back. So I encourage you to follow along in these verses as we go through these five characteristics. We see first that these people had professed repentance. We know repentance means to turn away from sin and to Christ. And so these people at one point professed their faith by repenting of sin. And they might have even repented of sin publicly. We see secondly that they are among those who have once been enlightened. As opposed to those who still walked in darkness and sin, these people in the local church seem to understand the things of God. They seem to to comprehend the gospel. And so they were baptized. In early Christian writings, conversion and baptism were sometimes referred to as enlightenment. And so that's what this author is referring to here. They had once been enlightened. They had received sign and seal of the covenant of grace in baptism. So there was what seemed to be a conversion to Christ, followed by baptism. And now third, the characteristic that he gives here is those who fell away was that they had tasted the heavenly gift. Now, this seems to refer to their participation in the Lord's Supper, in communion. They were members of the church. They repented and been baptized, and they were also receiving communion. Fourth, they had even shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to be careful here. Because this doesn't mean that they were regenerated or that they were born again by the Holy Spirit, but it perhaps refers to the fact that they had shared the blessings of the Holy Spirit that were poured out upon the local church. They had shared in the blessings of the Holy Spirit upon the church. They had heard Spirit-filled preaching, They had heard spirit-filled prayers. They had seen and perhaps even been blessed by spirit-filled ministry from the elders and the deacons and many in the church. They had shared in the blessings of the Holy Spirit. And the final characteristics of those who fell away was that they tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. That through the preaching and teaching 
and catechizing that they received, they experienced the blessings of God's good word and the power of that word. They saw in their midst, in the church, others being converted. They saw the resurrection power of Christ demonstrated in the lives of many in the church as the word was going forth, bringing about life, bringing about faith as God was using it to do so. And so these characteristics are describing those who profess faith, but those who do not possess faith. And so the question is, is it possible to experience all of these things and still not be saved? To still fall away? And the answer that we see in our text and in all of Scripture is that, yes, it is possible. We've already referred to the parable of the sower, a parable that describes what seems to be true faith, as we noted. And yet, what over time reveals itself to be false faith. And we see this also demonstrated very clearly in the wilderness generation of Israel. We know about that generation that God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, that that was a generation that witnessed many miracles, that saw the Red Sea crossing, that saw God destroy Pharaoh's army through the Red Sea. Even those same waters that delivered them from death had brought judgment upon Pharaoh's army. It was a generation that witnessed the goodness and the power of God, provision through the manna, water from the rock, protection from their enemies those many years in the wilderness. And they had even generation received the sign and seal of the covenant through circumcision. They had received so many blessings, and yet we read that they perished in the wilderness. Why? It was because of their unbelief. We read that God caused that first generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all of them died. It was only Joshua and Caleb and the children of that first generation that would enter ultimately into the promised land. We read about God's judgment to them and upon them in Psalm 95, verse 10 through 11. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And we see this, loved ones. We see this even more clearly in Judas Iscariot. Judas, who received close instruction from the Lord himself. Judas, who counted himself among the twelve, who was also counted by others among the twelve, and identified as a disciple of Jesus, who outwardly seemed to be a true disciple a follower of Jesus, and yet we know who inwardly was never actually regenerated. And so what we have here in this passage then, in Hebrews chapter 6, is a description of people who profess faith, who are part of the covenant community, who outwardly experience the blessings of the church, but who never personally trust 
in Christ. They profess faith, but they do not possess faith. They are like the people that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. There he says these uh, very solemn words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many right works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so this is why as we consider these Psalm words from Hebrews, these words of warning. This is why it is impossible, says the writer to the Hebrews, for such people to be restored, as we see there in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. He says it is impossible for such people to be restored. Why? See, those who hear Christ proclaimed in the gospel and then reject him are rejecting the only way of salvation. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way of salvation. And so to reject him is to reject the only way to eternal life. It's what we read in verse 6 there, the danger of rejecting Christ. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. See, the picture here is of the Jewish religious leaders there in the Gospels. Those Jewish religious leaders who heard the gospel as preached by Christ and the apostles, those Jewish religious leaders who saw in Christ's miracles, who even benefited from his ministry, and yet they rejected Christ. They not only rejected him, but went on the offense against him. They plotted to have him crucified. They treated him as an enemy and not as a savior. They utterly rejected him. Pastor Richard Phillips, who's a PCA pastor, he writes in his commentary then to explain this passage, to reject Christ after having come to the knowledge of the gospel is to say, as the Pharisees did, that he should be put away, that he is guilty as charged, a threat, an enemy, worthy of death. To repudiate Christ is, in effect, to take up hammer and nails and beat them into his hands and feet, to make common cause with those who crucified him, to mock him like the soldiers who laughed and sneered, he saved others, he cannot save himself. The writer So the Hebrews is warning us, if you and I deny the only way of salvation, there is no other way to be saved. The writer of Hebrews, he is not speaking about a single sin, adultery, or lying, or theft, but he is identifying a hardened heart. He is identifying a commitment to oppose Christ and reject him. And those who reject him in this way are those who will be judged by the law and their obedience to it. An obedience that we know no one can show perfectly. So the author now gives us an illustration of this 
through a short parable, as we see in our second point. In verses 7 and 8, there we read, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. As we see in this illustration, the idea behind it is that a true Christian will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This will happen because God ensures that we will as he works in us by his Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of true faith is perseverance. One of the evidences of true faith is perseverance. As we look at this illustration, this parable in verses 7 to 8, notice with me that both soils produce something. But what they produce is very different. The one we see produces a good, useful crop. The other bears thorns and thistles. One receives blessing from God. See that the other, however, is cursed. Both have been rained on. Both have been given time to produce. And yet the results over time are very different. So this illustration here points us to the fact that time exposes true faith from false It's helping us understand the reality that you and I can't immediately tell the difference between the crops. The land looks the same. Even as the crop begins to grow, they look the same. The thorns and the thistles from the good crop, it's green, it's sprouting, looks similar. But over time, as it grows, the difference becomes more and more clear. Those who fall away, those who turn from Christ are those who do not bear fruit in keeping with their repentance. Instead, they bear thorns and thistles. And their rejection of Christ is the evidence of their false faith. This is what John writes in his letter about those who left the church in this way. We read in 1 John 2, verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, They would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So as we read warning passages such as the one we read in Hebrews 6, and the very solemn passage that we just read in 1 John chapter 2 about those who left the church, those that John identifies, we want to ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit seeking to accomplish through such warnings, through some such solemn words, is his goal to cause us to cower in fear that we might be one of those who might fall away. Is his goal to keep us in suspense of our faith and to cause us to doubt every second of every day whether or not we are the Lord's, never to be sure. Is that the goal of the Holy Spirit? through such passages as these. Loved ones, that is not the goal of the Holy Spirit. Because as he writes in Hebrews, and as he writes here in 1 John, the writing is encouraging us to place our full assurance and faith upon the proper 
foundation. Upon Christ alone, the Holy Spirit is writing instruction, guidance, not to be fooled by placing our trust in something or someone other than Christ, not to turn from the only way of salvation. He is directing us, guiding us, so that we might keep our feet firmly planted upon the rock that is Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us assurance by turning our eyes to Christ and then keeping our eyes fixed upon him and him alone. And that's why we read in verses 9 through 12 that there is confidence of better things for you and for me. You read there in verse 9 through 12, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And as we consider these verses, it's important to note that some Christians struggle with assurance. They are sure of who Christ is. They believe his word. They trust in the right object, and yet they are unsure of themselves. And that might be you uh, this morning. You know Christ. You know his promises. And yet you are unsure of yourself and how you fit into those promises. You feel unsure if those promises are for you. You feel unsure in the strength of your faith, not in the object of your faith. One example of this is the father in the Gospel of Mark who pleaded with Jesus to cast the demon out of his son. Do you remember the words of that very desperate father on that day? He approached Jesus, and after explaining what had happened, Jesus commanded him to believe, for nothing is impossible with God. And the father responds in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, the father confesses that he believes, that he has faith in Jesus. He would not have approached the disciples and then the Lord if he did not have faith in Jesus. But he also simultaneously acknowledges his spiritual weakness. And he asks the Lord to create in him a heart that believes more firmly. His prayer is, Lord, I have faith. Grant me more assurance. Grant me greater faith. Loved ones, this is why the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, section 3, acknowledges that true Christians may struggle with assurance. It's not a reflection of whether or not we are true Christians if we struggle with assurance. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith, as we read here, provides us an excellent summary of the doctrine of assurance. We read in section 3, this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long 
and contend with many difficulties before he or she partakes of it. Confession is echoing scripture. That assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but there are true believers who have difficulties before they are partakers of it. And so even as we confess this morning, loved ones, that many true Christians might struggle with assurance, we as Christians should all seek to have true assurance. We need to understand this morning that the assurance of grace and salvation is not just for the spiritually elite, but it is something that all Christians should seek after diligently. In fact, the confession continues on in chapter 18, section 3. Yet because he is enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him by God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, it's a key part of it, without added revelation apart from Scripture, he may attain this assurance by a proper use of the ordinary means. And therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. But such diligence, his heart may grow, and by such diligence, his heart may grow in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So, loved ones, what the confession points us toward is what Hebrews chapter 6 also instructs us in, that we can be confident of better things as believers, things that belong to salvation, that we can have, as Hebrews chapter 6, 11 teaches us, we can have the full assurance of hope until the end. We can have that today. We can have that at this very moment. And not by extraordinary revelation, but we read there by a proper use of the ordinary means of grace, as the confession says. The ordinary means of grace being the word, sacraments, and prayer, and Christian fellowship, as some might include. We think about the word as the first ordinary means of grace listed. The word is that which causes us to understand more of Christ and the gospel. That through the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit applies and gives us understanding into the word, our knowledge of Christ grows. By then seeing the beauty of the gospel, we dig deeper into the truths of Christ as he is revealed to us. The second means of grace is those of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And even these, just as the word directs us to Christ, the sacraments also direct us to Christ to fix our eyes again upon him. As we saw the sacrament of baptism this morning, is a sign and seal of our being washed by Christ and engrafted into him. And then the Lord's Supper, a sign and seal of our ongoing participation in Christ, the word directing us to Christ, the sacraments directing us to Christ, and even prayer remaining in daily communion with Christ as we pray, as we seek him. And then fellowship, 
communion with the saints, with the body of Christ. Loved ones, what do all of these have in common? All of them point us to Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. See, they remind us of his work for us, of the gospel. All of these things help keep our focus upon Christ, and they remind us that Christ's own will persevere to the end. So we cannot know the mind of God. You and I this morning do not know who the elect are. And we cannot change God's election, but we can make ourselves more sure that we are numbered among the elect. And we can do so by applying these ordinary means that will help us grow in Christ-likeness and will increase our assurance as we rest in the promise of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 27 through 28, where he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the promises that we find in every page of Scripture, the promises that direct us to Christ. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Grant us growth in grace, grant us strength as we fight the good fight of the faith. Lord, cause us to be those who do not reject you, but who persevere to the end by the grace that you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.